welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, par usual, Jeff, joining me, also par usual, from our Seattle Tacoma studios, is Mark A. Johnston. Mark, how you doing? Oh man, it, it's an exciting day, so I'm doing I'm doing very well. I'm I'm in anticipation of this interview we have coming up. You know, you are actually right. This is a very big podcast for us. Beyond being, what is this, show number 143, we have a very, very big guest coming up later today, which I'm sure we can. We don't need to keep it a secret because if you've pushed play on this podcast, you've undoubtedly seen the title of this episode, which is that we had a chance to talk to Bobby Valentine last week. You could hear it today. It was great. It's all available for your listening pleasure. So uh, that's very exciting. I mean, Bobby Valentine, our, our podcast likes to center on 80s, 90s and somewhat into the 2000s. And I mean, he was a manager <laughs> for Texas and, and the Mets during that time. We won't talk about his uh, his time with the uh, the Red Sox a little bit later, but he was just he's such a great guy and he's done some crazy things and been involved with some crazy stories. So we will get to that in a little bit. But before we do that, we've got to get into our uh, our regular BP segment here. We got a couple of things that we want to talk about before we get there. And Mark, this is very rarely, in fact, I'm not sure if we have ever actually talked about something non-baseball history related on this podcast, but I saw something today that I had to bring up because it was just, it's too good. Have you ever heard of Hiram Maxim? I don't think so. It's not a topical medication, is it? No, nor did he, nor did he ever play on the House of David uh, touring teams. Okay. But he actually invented the automatic machine gun. And oh, okay. He spent so much time test firing these guns that he became completely deaf. He had a son, also named Hiram, who went on to invent the silencer, which I thought that was just hilarious. <laughs> no way. <laughs> little, little too late, but yeah, his, his son went on to invent the silencer. All right, enough of that. Let's get into baseball history. That's what we do here. <laughs> Awards have been handed out here. The season's over. Awards have been handed out. A lot of free agent contracts have been handed out as well. In the history of baseball, Mark, only one player has ever won an MVP award for two different teams before his 30th birthday. And that player was Barry Bonds. But now we've got a second one. Bryce Harper won his second MVP award for his second team before he turned 30 years old. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a good ball player, generally speaking. Yeah, generally you'll take him on your team. Uh, Another guy that had a great year that was in the National League MVP race was Juan Soto. Now, I love Juan Soto as a player. I can't stand watching his at-bats just because I get triggered easily. I I don't care what he does at his at-bats, but just stop with the dance for me. What a year he had. Did you know that? After the All-Star break, he came to the plate 322 times. He reached base 169 of those 322 times. That's scary. So he forgot to reach base fewer times than he actually reached base. He didn't reach base 153 times. That's a 525 on-base percentage in the second half of the season. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. That means half of the time, more than half the time he came to the plate, he was going to end up on first base or a base or circling the bases. <laughs> Whatever. He was going to reach base. That is an incredible, incredible number. 
Yeah, it, it's really showing that uh, he's uh, unfortunately aging and will soon be into the retirement age as he's yeah. got a, uh, you know, just turned 23. Yeah, it doesn't have many years, prime years. <laughs> <laughs> like literally in October, he turned 23. So I'm really wondering if in 10 years when he's 33, if he's still doing this, this thing at the plate after taking a pitch. I hope not. I really do. I hope not either. And again, I don't, you know, I put it in the category of bat flips. I, I don't care. It's just, I've got this thing where little things that people do repeatedly will trigger me. Um, <laughs> and, and it, but it's like somebody chewing ice that, that triggers me. It's just something like I see red. I don't act on it or, but watching him do that little dance does that to me, which is, as you can imagine, pretty frustrating. Are you familiar with the, uh, I think it's just on 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 youtube uh the uh, the show between two ferns with zach galifianakis yes i am are you well in 2017 the rockies did this thing where they did a takeoff of it on on their team social media account and it's called spill the beans with ryan spielborgs who is no longer in baseball his final year was 27 or 2011 so i don't i don't know how I don't know. I, I let me say this. I don't know when this came out. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd sounding. Sometimes all over the place. Sometime after the internet became a thing, this came out. But uh, this will give you a little a uh, little time frame. I guess he was his final year. He played all seven years with the Rockies. His final year was 2011, and he had a teammate Jason Giambi on with him. And this whole thing is set up just like the the between two ferns. You know, it's supposed to be uncomfortable and awkward silence and stuff and i'll put a link to it in the show notes because the entire episode spillboroughs spillborgs i'll say it right one of these times keeps uh, thinking that uh, jason giambi is jeremy giambi and keeps asking him why he didn't slide against the <laughs> and and giambi is great he goes along with it and he he gets him on a couple of things too but it's it's really it's I, I didn't want to cut it out because there were a lot of good bits. So I'll put the, the link in the show notes. so Everybody can can find that. Last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to trivia is Babe Ruth. I'm not. Have we ever talked about Babe Ruth on this podcast? Uh, mention it is more what we've done. Yeah, yeah just, just here and there <laughs> every now and then he'll pop up. Did you know that Babe Ruth was likely the first patient to receive chemotherapy for cancer? No, that I did not know. Yeah, I had no idea either. So this treatment, chemotherapy, which had only been developed a few years earlier and had only been tested on lab mice, Ruth became the first human to undergo this uh, this form of therapy. He started daily injections in 1947. Shortly, he gained back some of the weight he'd lost, reported less pain, and was actually able to swallow solid food again. He continued wow. chemotherapy for about six weeks and other various radiation treatments for around another year. Ultimately, obviously, Ruth died of cancer on August 16th, 1948, at the age of 53. But in that process of trial and air treatment, Ruth became what is believed to be the first patient to receive sequential radiation and chemotherapy, an approach that is still used in the treatment of many cancers today. Something I had no idea of. I, I'm curious how they decided, hey, the first human we're going to do this on, Babe Ruth. 
That's, I mean, it was like, look, we can't lose him. Oh, okay, yeah, we can't yeah, maybe lose it's him. like if something came out right now, like Betty White would be the, the, the prime candidate <laughs> to be the first person to live forever kind of thing. Big yeah, yeah, assign that to her. There you go. All right, let's get into uh, trivia before we get on to the star of the show, our interview with uh, Bobby Valentine. The trivia question from two weeks ago, because we took a week off for the American Thanksgiving. Not we don't we don't take weeks off for Canadian Thanksgiving, but we want to say hi to all our Canadian listeners. Yeah, no we, offense. My question that I asked before that was who holds the record for most batters faced in a career without actually retiring anybody? Now, Mark, you've had two whole weeks to pontificate upon this this question. Did you come up with anything? I, I have an answer. Okay. Uh, in his entire career, he didn't get anybody out uh, as a pitcher, and that was that was me. And it's very unfortunate because it applies to softball too. I really, I guess, I need to put qualifiers on that. These were major league players we were looking oh, for. Oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry. Then I have no guess. And and also, just a hint: I will never ask your trivia question in which you are the answer. Oh, but that would be fun someday. <laughs> All right. Well, the answers, there's actually two of them. Okay. Both Doc Hammond and Bill Childers each faced seven batters in their career and did not retire a single one of them. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Bill Childers did it in 1895. He was with the Louisville Colonels and he got into one game. He faced seven batters, gave up two hits, six runs, all of them earned, walk five, also had three wild pitches to his name. <laughs> and that was uh, that was it for his major league career. So somebody looked at this guy and went, hey, you know, I bet this guy could pitch. Yeah. Well, oh, I, sorry. I, he had to have been. Remember, we talked about that game when Ty Cobb got suspended for attacking the, the fan who had been harassing yes. him, even though he had no hands and one leg or whatever. Right. And so the rest of the Tigers uh, stood up for Ty Cobb and, and said, we're not going to play. So they fielded a team of guys they found on the corner, one of which was a priest that has gone down in history as being a, you know, one of the worst pitchers ever in that one game. You would have thought that it, it, he would have got another chance had this not been the case here. I'm guessing this guy, they, they were short a pitcher and they're like, you know, he yeah. was the first guy that showed up in the game and they're like, you want to pitch? And he's like, yeah. So that record stood for 27 years until one Mr. Doc Hammond came into the picture. He pitched in 1922 for the Cleveland, and I'll say it because they were still that at that point, the Indians. He got into a game at age 21, faced seven batters. He gave up three hits, six runs, all of them earned. He only walked three, and he only had one wild pitch, but he also hit a batter. Hmm. So both uh, Doc Hammond and Bill Childers both hold the record for facing seven batters without retiring them in their entire career. You know, and these just could have been the worst seven batters they ever faced in their career. They could have been gems after that, but no one will ever know. Yeah, and I mean, they could have faced like, you know, Babe Ruth and, and yeah, Lou Gehrig on. and <laughs> Tony Lazary. Yeah. It, it could Maybe have been. seven is like the upper limit for <laughs> you have to be kicked out of baseball. You didn't get guys out in seven at bat. Get out of here. You're done. Yeah, I mean. Makes sense to me. If, so, if that was the case, uh, Jared Kelnick would have probably never made it back to the big leagues this year. I should have said only for pitchers. Oh, that's only for pitchers. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. I don't know these rules. We, they're unwritten. Yeah. So I there are unwritten. I, not, I haven't written down yet. All right. We got a couple of listeners that got this right. Now, see, I thought this was going to be a, a tougher one where it would take a while for people to get answers. I woke up on Wednesday morning or no, on Tuesday morning. I'm sorry, because it, it posts at, at midnight on Tuesday morning. And I already had responses in our, on our <laughs> inbox. So kudos <laughs> to our listeners who are uh, very uh, sharp and very good researchers. Brian Krause, Chris Cook, Andrew Harner, and Marco Sainz all came up with the correct answers. So congratulations. All right. I got a new trivia question. Uh, this one relates a little bit to our, uh, to our guest coming up here in a minute, and Bobby Valentine. Bobby Valentine, is, is, as you'll hear when we ask him, got ejected quite a few times. Not quite, you know, not quite uh, Bobby Cox-like ejections, but he got ejected quite a few times as both a player and a manager. So my question is, who holds the record for being ejected most as a player? So hmm. any time that that guy went on to manage and got tossed, those don't count. I want to know who is ejected most as a player. Now I will give you this hint. The the in the modern era, it's Gary Sheffield with thirty three. Hmm. He ranks sixth all time in terms of player ejections. So it, it, I'm giving you a big clue there because I, I think a lot of places, if you go and look it up, it's going to say Gary Sheffield with thirty three. But that is in the modern era. We are talking all time, and this is somebody that you will have heard of. So it's hmm. not it's not a, a Doc Hammond. Or a Bill Childers. Have fun with that. <laughs> Have fun with that one. That's good. I like it. All right. Let's let the grand school come out and do their stuff. Mark, it is time. I think most of our listeners will probably remember Bobby Valentine most as the manager of the Rangers in the 80s and 90s, and then the 90s and the early 2000s with the Mets. Bobby was also a very highly sought after player whose, whose playing career was derailed by injuries, but he still managed to play in the big leagues for a decade before heading into the dugout. In the majors, he finished with 1,186 wins. He won one National League pennant with the Mets in 2000, and he also managed in Japan, where he became the first foreign-born manager to win the Japan Series as the skipper of the Chiba Lotte Marines in 2005. He's played or managed a very impressive list of who's who in baseball over the past 50 plus years, including both Mark's and my favorite players of all time, which we will talk to him about. His mentor was Tommy Lasorda, and it shows with his outgoing personality and his love of the game. We were lucky enough to get advanced copies of his new book, Valentine's Way, which is out today. When this drops, it is the 30th. It's out everywhere. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you can get books. He joined us last week from one of his, of course, favorite Italian eateries to talk some baseball and open up a pack of baseball cards. Bobby, thank you, first of all, so much for joining us here today. We're super excited to get to talk to you. We've got a bunch of questions for you. We've talked with a lot of players. We've never actually had a manager on the show here, though, so... Something I got to ask as a manager, and I'm not sure if you know this number, you were ejected 49 times as a player and a manager, most of them as a manager. Do you remember, A, your first ejection, and two, did you deserve to be tossed on any of those times? Uh, The answer to the second question is no, and uh, (laughs) the answer to um, the first question, I think the first time I got thrown out, I might have been the third base coach for the Mets, and it was on a um, 
on a Bach situation where I yelled Bach and Bruce Fromming said I couldn't yell Bach. Or it might have been as a player uh, yelling at an umpire who didn't know the rule at second base. I'm not sure what it was. So according to to the to the the data here, you were thrown out by Larry McCoy for fighting oh. in 1974. But you were the only player ejected in that game, I, that, which is kind of weird to be ejected for fighting. But just you. Wow, uh, that I wonder why that. Oh, because they said I charged the mound. I didn't really charge the mound. I just barely got out of the batter's box. Clyde Wright uh, threw a ball at my head and missed me. And uh, when I got up, uh, Larry McCoy, huh? Yeah, when I got when I got up, I threw my back to the umpire, and I was going to run out to the mound, uh, but Clyde Wright was already down, like in the batter's box, and so um, yeah, I hit him with a pretty good right. Um, he didn't go down, and the next thing I know, I was on the bottom of the pile, and I did get thrown out, and I separated my shoulder at the same time. Yeah, and that's in the book too, by the way. Valentine's Way is the book. We'll talk about it later. But I think that whole story uh, is in the book. Yeah, we wanted to talk about another ejection that you have in the book, which was great, by the way. We both finished it. Excellent read. We're excited to, to ask you about this. Probably, obviously, your most famous ejection and your and your yeah. alter ego uh, coming back into the dugout. Uh, first question I got to ask is, uh, do you have, is there a backstory to this character? Do you have a name for, for your, your character or I, like Roberto Valentino or something? No, is this the mustache like... is always the easy uh, disguise. As a matter of fact, when I was managing in Texas, I was suspended uh, for three days. And at, the, at that time, when you got suspended, you couldn't be in the stadium. Okay, so... Uh, the first game of the suspension, I stood outside the fence in Oakland, and they had an old an old little fence out in left field up on the hill, and I could look through the fence and see the game, and my my coaches could look and see me standing out there, and one hand up was a hit and run, and two hands up was a bunt and all that stuff. But then we went to the Metrodome, and there was no way of standing outside and looking in. So I wore the same disguise and sat out in the left field bleachers. And just to show you what, what, how good the disguise was, I put it on in the bathroom. I was able to be in the batting practice with my team. As soon as batting practice was over, I was supposed to leave the stadium. So batting practice was over. I left the clubhouse. I went into the bathroom across the way in the hallway. I put white powder in my hair because at the time my hair was black and the mustache and the glasses and the hat and, and pulled my jacket up and it was such a good disguise that on my way up the escalator to go out to the left field bleachers a guy was coming down the escalator on the other side and went hey bobby where are you going so it, yeah it, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't that good of a disguise yeah well, it worked. No, I mean, nobody in, in, in Shea, none of the umps realized it until after the game. Is that yeah, but correct? it wasn't there that long. You know, the TV camera got me for sure. When I went out on the field and I was slapping five with everyone, the umpires were walking off the field. A couple of them looked and saw it and, and they, they kind of uh, smiled, if you will. Yeah, they smiled. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next, the next day became a big, you know, big incident because... The press made it a big incident, you know, disrespecting the game and all that stuff and wound up getting fined. And 
and then uh, went in protest of protest the fine and got the ten thousand dollar fine reduced to five thousand and the three-day suspension reduced to two there you go that's a great story i absolutely think that's hilarious well thanks it worked it's in that the guys needed needed a little levity we were going through a pretty tough time as you read in the book you know they had the deer in the headlights look oh what's going to go wrong next because the play that i was arguing was a catcher's balk that was called the mike piazza and so you could imagine that that's an arguable uh, call, and everyone was confused by it, for sure. Yeah, you don't see that one very often. I actually worked for the Braves uh, around this time when, during the big rivalry with the Mets. And, well, that's and, what Bobby Cox is thrown a, out once every five games. You're talking about my 49 Exactly. You got that in a year all that. Uh. <laughs> well, I remember because I know you made a deal about it. The the brown the grounds crew at, at Turner Field at that point that uh. box was uh, the catcher's box was a lot a lot bigger than it was. And then they'd to wipe be. out the lines. Remember, it was bigger than yeah. it was yep. Javi would and come out Javi, and immediately yep. come out and, and wiped out the lines. It was it was kind of silly, but it worked for them. I don't know why it worked. You know, that'll be one of those things. I don't know why that was so allowed, if you will, in that era of seven to ten years. But, but it was. Bobby, you had uh, you got to uh, play with Nolan Ryan and manage Nolan Ryan, and he's kind of my hero. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's um, a good hero. Yeah, he. he I, I ended up picking the right guy. Oh, he is good. Yeah, I, I uh, played center field in his first no hitter. I managed the sixth and seventh no hitter, his 5,000 strikeout, his 300 win. And they were all spectacular games, as well as, you know, the it might have been six or seven one hitters that I either played or, or managed when he was on the mound. And, and those are even more exciting as, as more exciting than the actual no hitters because I remember one Lariano, was it Nelson Lariano? Is that right? The, uh, the little switch hitter for Toronto. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, I think with two outs in a ninth, he might have hit a ball over the bag at first base for a triple to break up a no-hitter. Um, I was playing once where I believe Eddie Brinkman, the slugger Eddie Brinkman himself, shortstop for the Tigers, uh, bloop one over second base, possibly two outs in a ninth. At least, you know, as, as time goes on uh, – it's always two outs in a ninth, right? That no, the no hitter is broken up. <laughs> it really might have been one out in the eighth, but it was deep into the game. I also, you know, they, it's also you guys read that, but your people might like it. I came back after that ejection we talked about, uh, and I separated my shoulder. Uh, I was on the disabled list, but I wasn't on the disabled list because I said, "Oh, I could play." even though my left shoulder was uh, separated and the training room kept saying, give him another day and give him another day. Well, I got to pinch hit in a game against Louis Tiant when Nolan and Louis were matched up. I think it was a day game and Nolan pitched 13 complete innings. He threw 200 and I think 53 pitches he struck out like 19 and walked 11, and he got a no decision. <laughs> and Louis Tiam went out in the 14th and got the loss. <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow. Now, you were in. You were playing center field uh, in that first no hitter. Definitely not your normal position. Uh, do you ha- you had some fly balls or some some close plays out there at all? Yeah, the no hitter. Yeah, I, I made a couple of decent plays. One in the right center, and you know, one where I came in. You know, one of those bloops that wasn't a bloop. But there really weren't that. Rudy Mioli was playing shortstop in my stead. He made a nice over the shoulder catch on another bloop that was hit. But uh, there weren't that many. I think the the one ball might have been Amos Otis hit to right center field. It was pretty good. I ran it down the gap. Um, you know, Nola was dominating. He was dominating. I, I was playing shortstop, and Al Kaline got to second base after he walked and then got to second on a wild pitch. And uh, I said, how's he throwing, Al? And at that time, Nolan had two pitches, a fastball and a curveball, uh, a real fastball and a real good curveball. And uh, I said, how's he throwing to the Hall of Famer Al Kaline? And he said, well, if they don't make one of those pitches illegal, he's going to throw a no-hitter today. And uh, <laughs> it, it turned out that I pretty sure that was the game that Eddie Brinkman hit the got the hit. And then the other thing about Nolan, just because uh, you're a Nolan fan, you know, there was, I want to say the American League strikeout record was 18. And we were playing Boston. And um, he had 18 strikeouts with two outs in the ninth inning. We were winning. And uh, he needed one for the record. And uh, I got a ground ball hit to me at shortstop that uh, kind of clanged around in my glove a little, then bounced out of my glove. I picked it up and threw it to first, and the guy was safe at first. And then he struck out the next guy for the 19th uh, strikeout, which was a record at the time. And I think possibly Tom Seaver broke it uh, soon thereafter with 20. But I got, if you can imagine, if you look at my record, I, I made errors pretty frequently at shortstop and this happened to be an error that i made that everyone thought i i was actually trying to make it and i just after the game said hey <laughs> i i've never tried to make an error including the one today so that that was an interesting thing yeah it worked out to uh, nolan's benefit i hope he bought you lunch or something yeah nolan nolan was a friend he 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 was good to me you mentioned uh, Nolan Ryan's 5,000 strikeout. Uh, my favorite player happens wow. to be Ricky Henderson, who you, you said some nice things about in the book, despite a certain card game that uh, is, we won't talk about that. But you were managing in Texas when Ricky was really at the height of his game. What was your game plan going into a game when you were facing Ricky Henderson? There, there was no way to stop him. You know, I, I was hoping he'd just get it out of the way and hurry. I didn't even mind when he hit a home run leading off the game. At least he didn't torment my pitcher, you know, getting on the base. He would steal second and steal third, then get on third and, and you know, cause a wild pitch. He was he was the most, um, what do I want to say, dominating uh, player. He was able to control the game better and longer than uh, any player I, I ever played against or managed against and then managed uh, later in his career. Yeah, that 5,000 strikeout, so 499. All right, 4,999 up on the scoreboard. It's flashing. Everyone knows the next strikeout is his 5,000. Entire stadium standing on their feet, waiting for the, the occurrence. And he threw a 3-2 pitch to Ricky Henderson. And the flash bulbs in the entire stadium went off at the same time. I was stunned. It was like an atomic bomb being dropped in center field. There was just this big 
flash of light in the entire stadium as the ball was released by Nolan. And incredibly, Ricky Henderson fouled the pitch off. I don't know how he did it. I thought it was one of the greatest athletic feats I ever saw. But uh, he lived for another pitch, and the next pitch um, he died with, and Nolan got his 5,000 strikeout. And they're probably – you know who Nolan Ryan uh, struck out the most in his career, by the way? I don't, I don't know. His career spans so long, he faced so many people. <laughs> so the guy who struck out the most in his career, I believe – you might have to look this one up – was Rod Carew. Interestingly oh, wow. enough. One of the greatest hitters who ever who ever lived. Yeah, yeah. He, he didn't strike out all that much. Either. No, that's impressive. No. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. The story related to that. I I don't remember who was catching for you. If it was Gino Petrali or, or who was behind the, the plate. But supposedly the story is that when Ricky went up to at bat, that at bat, he asked if he could take the ball out to Nolan when he struck out. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but. Uh, uh, Everybody has a great Ricky story like that. What do you have a great Ricky story that that you saw or heard him say something crazy actually in person? Well, you know, um, there are a lot of them, but I want to dispel the one that's out there uh, just because I lived it. Okay, when we released Ricky, he was in limbo in Arizona for I think you, you have to wait 10 days to clear all the teams before you could sign with another team. And about a week after he left our team, we were having batting practice. And now John Olerud in 99 was with our team as Ricky was Uh, in 2000. He left and signed with the Mariners. And, you know, John Olerud always wore a helmet because he had an aneurysm uh, when he was in college. And uh, when he was on the field or at the plate or even in the dugout, he always wore his helmet to protect uh, his head from being hit. Well, Scott Lawrenson, our trainer, came out behind the cage in batting practice maybe a week after we released released, uh, Ricky. And the news came over the wire that Seattle and Ricky had agreed to terms. And so Scott came out and said, hey, did you see that Ricky signed with uh, Seattle? And I was standing there with a couple of coaches and a couple of reporters and we said, oh, no, is that, is that on the wire? He says, yeah, it just came over as a newsflash. I said, well, that's interesting. And then he came out about 20 minutes later, and he said, hey, guys, how about this one? Ricky went into the clubhouse, and he was walking around the clubhouse introducing himself to everyone. And as Ricky would do, he'd say, hey, player, how are you? I'm Ricky. And then he'd go, oh, hey, player, how are you? I'm Ricky, because he never knew anybody's name on the team. Then Scotty said, and he went over to this one guy, he said, hey, player, I'm Ricky. And he looked at him and he said, hey, do you wear that helmet when you're out in the field? And the guy said, yeah, I do. He says, that's funny. I played with a guy last year who did that, too. And he was talking to John Olerud. And we all laughed. But the truth of the matter was, when Scott made up the story, Ricky was still in Arizona. He hadn't even joined the team yet. <laughs> right? So, you know, it could have happened. It, you know, three days later, it could have happened because – like I said, oh, Ricky, Ricky was spectacular. <laughs> he called the coaches, hey, coach. He called the manager, Mr. Manager, sometimes just manager. Called the players, players, and he called the pitchers. Ben Green said he played he played cards with him all year long. At the end of the year, he introduced himself, and he, he, he didn't know what his name was. 
Well, I, I, as you were telling that story, I looked it up. Nolan Ryan actually struck out Claudel Washington 39 wow. times. Rod Carew is number four with okay, 29. So I'll bet you when I got him, I'll bet you when he got to the Rangers, Carew was number one. And then he got, and then he yeah, started chalking it up around. more with Claudel. I'll bet, because then Claudel came over to the American League. One of our favorite players, Freddie Patek. I Patek, can never say yeah. his last name right, but the, yeah, five six. Yeah, I think he's what three <laughs> three two. Yeah, he's same really size small. as Altuve. <laughs> so he's one Altuve yeah. tall. If we're if we're measuring by Altuve's. <laughs> you know, we hear all the time about how difficult it is to play or manage in New York. And you go into the book uh, a few times, talk about uh, how stuff was blown out of proportion or how uh, dealing with the media is, is can be pretty crazy in New York. Um, I'm just curious, small stuff gets blown out of proportion. Is there anything that comes to mind that, that just was ridiculous like that? See, you know what it is, gets blown out of proportion and there's more of it. It's not like it's so much different. It's just more, there are more questions there are more reporters. There's more time that's needed. Now, over COVID and, and with the new restrictions where you just go into the interview room, I think it's a little different today. But, uh, you know, they used to come in at 4.30, sit around the clubhouse, just sit in the lounge chairs, hang out until the guys went out in the, in the field, then hang around batting practice and ask guys during, during batting practice, then come back in and hang out another half an hour, you know, in, in the clubhouse just to – to be there to see what's going on, but something that was blown out of proportion. Well, you know, I brought Mel Rojas in, who was a right-handed reliever who had a very good split finger fastball uh, in a fastball to pitch to Paul O'Neill in a uh, Subway Series game, interleague game, and and we had a lead, and Paul either hit it over the fence or hit it off the fence, and the lead was lost. You know, at that at that time in the late '90s, I was. I would do matchups, statistical matchups, you know, and, and Rojas was much better against left-handers than he was against right-handers, you know, because he had that he had that forkball. And instead of bringing in a guy who's left-handed named Bill Pulsifer, who once again, he was left-hander, but he didn't get left-handers out very well because he kind of, he threw a, a left-handed cutter, you know, that would go in on right-handers and it was just a little flat slider against left-handers. So instead of bringing in Pulsiver, the left-hander to face to O'Neill, the left-hander batter, I brought in Rojas, who gave up the hit. And it became like the um, the dumbest move in the history of baseball. Yeah. That's basically people not understanding the nuance that goes into it is all it was. At that time. Now, I mean, now they, you know, would respond to it, you know, right. like, <laughs> as, though the, as though the reporter was actually making it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the book, Valentine's Way, you recounted uh, a lot of great stories about the 2001 series. Also, the, uh, the the World Series, the Subway Series, which was great against the Yankees. And you mentioned that George Steinbrenner removed all the furniture from the visiting clubhouse in Chase Stadium and replaced it with Yankee furniture. But in a very unfortunate turn of events, the sprinkler system in the visiting clubhouse somehow was triggered and damaged this furniture. Has anybody ever gotten to the bottom of this uh, this curious hey, chain must, of events? It's been a mouse. It had to be a it had to be a, a mouse up by the <laughs> the sprinkler head or something. Um, yeah, you know. But it was amazing that he brought it. It, it looked it went from being the Met Club 
clubhouse that everybody else, every other visiting team sat in to looking like the Yankee clubhouse. Every guy had their own chairs, you know, Yankee logos on it. He brought in the, the sofas, which I'm not sure that we actually had sofas in the visiting clubhouse. Um, we might have. But we might not have. I, I don't really remember. It really, I, it wasn't as though I was in charge of that stuff. That was for the visiting clubhouse attendant. You know, they would provide the food. They would protect the sprinklers. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how that, if you're asking me, I don't know how they went off. No. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations oh, is long, long, long on, since on gone. On the sprinkler so. violation, huh? <laughs> I'm curious to know, Bobby, that, you managed and played with so many great players. As far as just being a great athlete, who, who comes to mind when you think about someone who, who is just a fantastic athlete? Maybe someone you would build a team around if you could. Richie Allen. Uh, oh. Rich, Rich, Richie Allen was uh, the, the dude. You know, I mean, he, he ran the bases. He had like a size 29-inch waist and 64-inch chest. You know, and never worked out. You know, he played a little like Ricky, but a little o- oversized Ricky Henderson. Um, and you know, his batting practice were uh, were the best things to ever watch. He used to size size forty two ounce, thirty six inch bat uh, when he hit, and he he held two fingers off the end of it, kind of like Julio Franco did. You know, he could hit the ball in batting practice from right field foul line, which he did. His first uh, six swings, he would hit two to right, two to center, and two to left. And sometimes he'd even say two on the line, two to center, and two on the line. You know, so he had that kind of uh, ability uh, with a with a weighted bat, uh, which was unbelievable. Um, he he hurt his hand. He said pushing a car in a snowstorm where he pushed his hand through the back stoplight. I'm not sure that's how it happened, but um, it, it affected his throwing for a few years late in his career. But I really, I really like Richie, Richie Allen as, uh, you know, that athlete that you can really build a team around. All right. Uh, before we get to this pack of baseball cards, just curious, you faced Nolan Ryan. I, it looks like one game. You had three at bats. Do you remember what uh, what you did? I used to tell him I got a hit against him. I hope I got it. I hope I got a hit. Yeah, you did. You uh, you went one for three against him. He did not strike you out either. So you can kind of kind of hold that over his well, head. Well, you know he didn't he didn't strike me out. That's when I was with the Dodgers and he was with the Mets. But in '75, I was just hanging on. I was trying to make the team. There's going to be a, an inter squad game uh, the last day of spring training. And, uh, you know, my butt was kind of on the line and, uh, he was going to get the pitch and I was going to be, I was on the other team and the night before we were out and it was like a little kibitz about him pitching and me hitting. And I was, I always told him when we were teammates that I could hit his fastball all day long. And he said that night, he says, well, tomorrow you're going to get a chance. You're going to get up. I'm throwing you fastballs. Let's see what you got. And my butt's on the line, okay? But it's still friends being competitive. And uh, I got up, and the bases were loaded. And I followed a couple pitches off. And the it count went to three and two. And I, I now, now I had him timed. He was throwing. They were high. And I, I was timing. And I was following it back. And now I followed one down the right field line. And I figured I got this one in play. 
and he wound up and he threw a curveball that started at my head and broke over the outside corner, you know, where I was sure it was going to be a fastball. And after I picked up my pants and made sure they were kind of clean, uh, I walked back to the bench, strike it out. So he did strike me out on that three, two curveball, And I got sent, sent to the minor leagues. <laughs> Well, at least he didn't give you a bow tie. <laughs> there were a couple. He might have. You know, the first pitch, he might have. Oh, but a bow tie. I'll give you this one. So now, fast forward 100 years, I'm wearing this uniform. I'm now the manager of the Chiva Lote Marines. It might be 2008. And he's selling U.S. beef to the Japanese government. And he comes out to a ball game. And uh, I, I tell everyone he's going to come out. He's retired by about three years. All that the Japanese press wants to, wants to know is how fast he can still throw. So he's going to throw the first pitch out. When he gets there, he said, hey, no, it's a little different here. You throw from the mound. There's a catcher. There's a hitter. There's an umpire. It's a real formality. They're going to put the speed up on the scoreboard, you know, whatever you throw. So you better get loose. You know, this is face-saving time. So he did. He went down in his street shoes and warmed up and went out to the mound to throw out the first pitch. And I was the batter and there was an umpire and uh, the cheerleaders were lining the infield, waving their pom-poms and he wound up and he threw an 84 mile an hour fastball. This is three years after he got through playing, right? Uh, as his foot slipped on the mound and the ball came straight at my head. And I thought I was going to do the ceremonial swing and miss. And instead, I went down on my ass. And uh, I have the photograph at home signed by him that said he was distracted by the cheerleaders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet he was popping a lot of that Advil yeah. afterwards, too. He's probably no, a little sore. He, he some. So uh, what we do here is um, we uh, would... When we have a guest, yeah, we open a pack of baseball cards. So I thought a, a pack of 1990, this is right in your wheelhouse when you're managing wow. the Rangers. And uh, what we, we do is we add up the war for the year of the card. So we'll add up the war of each player from 1990. A couple of different things, if they're wearing glasses or eye black, flip downs, anything like that, we'll give you an extra tenth of a point of war. If they've got real stirrups on, because we like that, get an extra tenth of a point of war. But if they're wearing the two-in-ones, we minus a half uh, tenth of a point of war. They're wearing the sweatbands with their caricature on it, which are really awesome. You get an extra tenth of a point. And if they are in the Hall of Fame now, you get a whole extra point of war. So Dave Dravecki just came in with a with a good score a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so he's he's at the top of the uh, the former players and managers uh, list right now. So that's who we're going to shoot. So for. what are we trying to do? You're just going to add them up. I don't have to guess at what the collective war is. Oh, no. no, no, you don't have to guess anything. We just like, you know, if you've got a story about them or if, uh, you know, any any memories of them uh, that you want to share. That's great. All right, so this is a this first guy we just talked about, literally just talked about, because Nolan Ryan has struck Claudel. him out more than he did anybody else. It's Claudel yeah. Washington here with the California yeah. Angels. So let me, uh, let me look him up here, and we'll see what he Mike comes up with. So Claudel Washington, member of the 1974 World Series team with Oakland. I like that. In 1990, it was his final year in the big leagues. He split time between the Angels and the New York Yankees. Uh, he was 35, and I think he was pretty much done at this point. He did not have a great year. Uh, I hate to tell you this. He actually had a minus 0.9 war. 
that is uh, that's a tough one to start out with. And it looks like he's got real stirrups, though. So you, you've got that. So that's only a minus 0.8 there for Claudel to start that's out with. That's his career war, huh? Uh, no, career, uh, just war for oh, the year of gotcha. the cards, okay. 1990. Gotcha. It, it was yeah, his yeah. final year. Uh, this guy looks mean, but uh, he's got a, a son in the big leagues as well, Cam. It's Bedrock, Steve Bedrosian. Yeah, with the Giants. He had a war. His war is okay. Yeah, did you year. have? He was pitching Let's okay, 2-5. So Steve Bedrosian in 1990, he was with the Giants. He went 9-9 nine and nine with a 420 yeah. ERA. Uh, 87 ERA plus all of that equates to a war of well you're going the wrong minus, way here a minus wow. point four. <laughs> 90 that's I can't yeah I can't uh, add up the years 90 yeah yeah all right next you have got oh this is a good card uh Eddie Lee Whitson with the Padres and he's got Sean Dunstan in the background because when you think of Ed Whitson you think of him leading off of second base like he is no here. you don't yeah Whitson pitched pretty well for the Padres, though. That's before he went to the Yankees. Yeah, he's the one that got in the fight with Billy yeah. Martin in yeah. the bar. Yeah, so in 1990 with the Padres, he at the age of 35, he went 14-9 and with a 2.6 ERA and a 148 ERA+. plus. I think you're going to do well here. That is a 5-point, or no, that's a 7.0 wow. war. Do it, Witty. Very nice. nice. Let's see. Also, also, I'm going to give you extra points because in the background, Sean Dunstan's got flip-down sunglasses and the Mims bands and real stirrups. So I'm going to give you a plus 7.3 nice. there. Shuan, not Sean. Shuan. Yeah. Shuan. Yeah, he had that, that absolute cannon. Yeah. All right, here we've got a pitcher for the uh, Expos. It's Zane Smith. Good pitcher. I remember him as a brave for forever. Yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. He was one of the the few good pitchers before they got Maddox and Smoltz right. and Glavin in the uh, in the eighties. There, uh, nineteen ninety, he split time between Montreal and Pittsburgh. Not bad, twelve and nine with a two point five five ERA, and that gets you a four point one. So now you're really now you're yeah. really moving here. All right, next uh, pitcher, uh, pitcher, a catcher here with the Padres. It is Mark. No, Parent. not much war there. <laughs> Matter of fact, he probably only played about 12 games. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he's a pretty much a perennial kind of number two catcher. Uh, never caught more than 50 or never played in more than 65 games. But that was in oh. 1990 wow. for the Padres. And uh, Ward does factor in uh, defense as well. So you're going to get a positive point one wow. here for uh, wow. Mark Parent. I'm waiting for one of these. Oh, here's somebody you'll know about. We mentioned him earlier. It is catcher for your Texas Rangers, Gino <laughs> Petrali. So Gino Petrali was driving a Dr. Pepper truck when the third string catcher at AAA got hurt. We signed him out of the Dr. Pepper truck. I saw him play a game on an off day. I like the fact that he was a switch hitter, and I brought him to the big leagues. That's awesome. And now I'm I'm guessing Gino Petrali was uh, was Italian. He was Italian, <laughs> and I didn't like him because he was Italian. I liked him because I was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, Gino Petrali, twelve years in the big leagues, nineteen ninety with the Rangers, one hundred and thirty three games, two fifty five average. All of that equates to a positive point seven nice. WAR. And uh, let's see here. He's got real stirrups on as well. So that's a positive 0.8. Yeah, let me just say this one. In one of the great, great 
Texas duels, Nolan Ryan hooked horns against Roger Clements. Roger was with the mm. uh, Red Sox, obviously Nolan with the Rangers. I believe the score is one to nothing going in the bottom of the ninth inning. Roger was winning. We were losing. And that man right there, Gino Petrali, hit a home run against Roger Clements, who's incredibly after the game said, oh, shit. I just threw the ball where he was swinging. <laughs> that kind of reminds me, we had Vance Law on. You remember? I knew his dad, uh, too. Of course, he, yeah. Yeah, Vern. And uh, Vance Law pitched a couple of times in blowouts, and he struck out Tony Gwen, if you can believe it or not. And Vance has, has said that the when people asked Tony Gwen, who was the, was the one at-bat you wish you could have over again, it was always that at-bat against Vance Law because he funny. struck him out. Yeah. Kind of the same, yeah. same kind of thing. All right, next you've got a, a rookie card here for a pitcher for the Tigers, Kevin Ritz. I don't remember Kevin. That would be Kevin putting on the Ritz. Oh, I don't remember Kevin Ritz. Ah, All right, there you go. See, yeah. Uh, 1990 went 0-4 with an 11.05 ERA. Not, not, not a great year for Kevin. Minus 0. 0.6 there, so that'll that'll take a little bit away. You're at you're at 10.5, so you're you're you got a ways to go for Javecki. This one will help though. It's a collector's club. It's Big Mac, Mark McGuire. In 90, nice. Yeah, this yeah, is going to be. Uh, if you can get a Ricky in this year, that that'll be the big thing because. Uh, MVP yeah. in, in 90, but uh, Mark McGuire in 1990, let's see, hit 235, 110 walks to lead the league, 39 home runs, 108 RBI, and all of that equates to a 5.7 war. Oh. Very nice. That had to have been scary, seeing Ricky, Carney Lansford, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Dave Henderson. Pretty good team. Man. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Next, this guy ended up on the A's at one point, I remember. Here he is with Atlanta. It's Geronimo Barroa. Yeah. You remember Geronimo Yeah, outfielder, right-handed hitter. Sure. Let's see. Geronimo Barroa in 1990 uh, did yeah. not play much. He only got into yeah. seven games. So uh, even right there, nothing. And nothing on that card will help you out. Next, you've got another catcher for the Giants, Kurt Manwaring. That would be right. Kurt. What is that Manwaring? Yeah, he's Manwaring. Uh, Kurt Manwaring in 1990. Boy, you you could. <laughs> Geronimo only played in seven. Manwaring only played in eight games. So I don't think you're going to get a whole lot here. Uh, he's got real stirrups on, though. So you're going to get a positive point one. You got just a couple of cards left. It is uh, first baseman here for the Astros, Glenn Wilson. Big bat. And uh, he's got glasses on right there. So that'll help you as well. One of Mark's favorite players, Glenn Wilson. Yeah. I. Big Astros fan. 1990 was his uh, second to last year in the yeah. big leagues. Uh, still had 10 home runs, 55 RBIs in uh, 118 games. And all of that equates to a positive 0.2 plus the glasses. So that'll get you a positive 0.3. And next you have got pitcher for the Orioles, Jeff Ballard. I remember that name solely from his baseball cards. Yeah, left-hander, kind of soft thrower. Uh, let's see. Seven years in the big leagues, 1990. Well, you're not going to like this. He went two and oh. 11. Yeah, that's uh, that's rough. 4.93 ERA, and that equates to a WAR of uh, minus 0.8. So uh, that one hurt. Next, you've got here with the uh, with the Mets. It's Dave Magadan. He he could hit. Yeah, 
I think he's he was a batting coach for a while. Oh, long time. He's my batting coach in Boston. Oh. Ah, well, there you go. Let's see. Dave Magadan had a good career. Uh, played for 16 years. 288 career average. Very nice. In uh, 1990, he hit 328. Six home runs, 72 RBI, a 141 OPS plus, and that equates to a 4.6 war. So that's a good one. All right, so you're at uh, you're at 20.4, and you've got two cards left. So you're four points behind uh, our leader, Dave Dravecki. You're going to get another catcher. You got a lot of these uh, here with Atlanta, Tommy Gregg. Tommy Gregg. Left hand hit, or is this hit the a little pitcher? pinch hitter, better better <laughs> pinch hitter than he was a catcher. Uh, let's see, Tommy Gregg in uh, 1990 hit 264 with five home runs, 32 RBI, and that equates to a WAR of positive 0.4. He's got real stirrups on too, so that'll get you a positive 0.5 and bring you to 20.9. And your final card is uh, this was not my favorite pitcher for the Oakland Athletics but a great left-hander he's a pitching coach he's been for a while it's Rick Honeycutt mm. Honeycutt pitch teammate of mine yeah. yeah he could pitch but he was relieving then yeah if you if you can see this card he looks like he's uh, he's a police officer writing a ticket uh, yeah he's got from Tennessee, wore those, uh, he always wear those mirrored sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. In 1990, uh, with Oakland, two and two, 2.7 ERA with seven saves, some mop-up duty there when Eck was uh, tired, and that equates to a WAR of a positive 0.4 plus the sunglasses will get you a 0.5, and that brings your total to 21.4. That'll put you in second place. Uh, oh, cool. You're you're behind you're behind Dave Dravecki, but uh, let's Great. see, we've got West Chamberlain and Sean Lowe and Chris Snelling ahead of you. But nice uh, that that is not bad, Bobby. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed the book, Valentine's Way. Uh, we will put in our show notes where you can get a hold of it. Yeah, it comes out at the end of the month. It's on Amazon now. I appreciate it, guys, and it it's a pretty good read. Thanks. Bobby, uh, it's on Amazon. It's probably pretty much anywhere uh, you can find books, I imagine. If uh, yes. I wanted to get a signed copy, is there a way to do that? Sure is. Uh, just send it to um, my sports academy in Stanford, Connecticut. Tell me who it is that you want it signed to. Send a little return address uh, envelope. costs $3.80 to mail it one way. And uh, done. Awesome. Perfect. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes. The book is Valentine's Way. Bobby Valentine, we really appreciate your time. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pleasure, Bobby. Guys. Take care. Enjoy. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. All right, Mark, that was awesome. I, As I was editing that, I noticed I actually, I think I sounded a little nervous talking to Bobby Valentine <laughs> because he's like, he's been around and somebody I have known about since I became a baseball fan. Yeah, I, I uh, was a little bit nervous myself. I think we did an okay job of hanging in there. And uh, he, he certainly makes you more comfortable by his uh, conviviality. Yeah, he was just, he was all smiles and he was kind of, you know, everything... Everything we were we were hoping for, he was very gracious to to get us advanced copies of the book. And usually, when we when we have a, a somebody that's written a book, we might not read the whole thing because we've got to get it 
we don't have time to read the whole thing, but we both read it cover to cover. It is really interesting, especially if you like baseball like we do from the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. It is really great. It's got some great stories. I'd never heard the one about... Uh, the Yankee locker room <laughs> being moved to Shea Stadium or the sprinklers. Uh, that was a definite contradiction to the uh, Ricky Henderson, John Olerud story. I have heard from John Olerud that it was the Mariners equipment manager that came up with the story. But according to Bobby, it was the Mets equipment manager who came up with the story. So <laughs> hear new stuff all the time. Like I said, I will put all the links to where you can purchase that book if you can't figure it out on your own in the show notes. Uh, We are also going to post the actual video. He was uh, on the on a Zoom call with us when we did this. So uh, we're going to post that unedited onto YouTube as well. So you can hear, you know, you had some salty language here and there. Uh, if you want to hear him swear, you know, that's cool. Uh, you can find it in YouTube. We'll put the link there in the show notes as well. Also, Mark, we did a thing last week when we weren't doing a podcast. We did a live broadcast on Twitch and it is up on YouTube already. I haven't even listed it and we've got a couple of, of views already where you and I sat back and we watched a couple of old episodes of This Week in Baseball, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. We'll definitely do that again. Uh, we've got some other baseball stuff to, to watch, and we'll make sure to get it out there. That is on our YouTube channel. Again, if you want to check that out, follow us, subscribe there, and uh, we're going to start doing some more video stuff as well. But, Mark, I think that's probably enough stuff for this week. Uh, if people do want to follow us throughout the week, you can find us on all the social medias. That is at 2 Strike Noise, at TWO Strike Noise, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch. We're everywhere. We also have an email that Mark's going to tell us about. You can reach us on email at two strike noise, T-W-O strike noise at gmail.com. Don't have to worry about the uh, problems with shipping and, and uh, with uh, logistics. They're, they're not going to affect the show. By the way, if you no shipping problems with uh, Valentine's way, you can get it on Kindle or, or Google play, all those places. You can get it instantly as well yes and plus bobby told us how in the interview if you've got the book and you want to get it autographed how he will do that for you as well so no excuse to not get that but uh that's going to wrap up this episode once again we want to thank bobby valentine very gracious for uh spending some time with us opening some baseball cards and uh, overall just being a good guy so that's going to do it for this episode we will see you next week on the next episode of two strike noise thank you god bless you have a great day